about it. She wrote these words. I wonder how the Ebola doctor feels now that his humanitarianism has cost a Christian charity, that is Samaritan's Purse, the, the, the ministry that he worked for, how his humanitarianism has cost a Christian charity much more than any services he rendered. What was the point? Whatever good Kent Brantley did in Liberia has now been overwhelmed by the more than $2 million already paid by the Christian charity Samaritan's Purse just to fly him and his nurse home in separate Gulfstream jets specifically and specially equipped with medical tents and to care for them at one of America's premier hospitals. Why did Dr. Brantley have to go to Africa? The very first risk factor listed by the Mayo Clinic for Ebola is travel to Africa. Can't anyone serve Christ in America anymore? In Coulter's opinion... Brantley should have never gone to Africa. He had no business there. Why could not he, as a Christian, focus on the needs in the United States? Aren't there needs here? And I'm sure that that article resonated with many. Perhaps even in our churches in America. But that article fundamentally contradicts the gospel. And it fundamentally contradicts the last command that Jesus gives after he is resurrected from the grave, what we call the Great Commission. You see, Jesus' resurrection was the first act, the first event of the new creation. As I've said before, the resurrection was the promise of a new world given in advance while we live in the old world, okay? So the, the resurrection is the first act, the first event of a new creation that will one day be universal in scope. One day the entire earth is going to be one big new heavens, new earth, new creation. That is God's mission. That's the purpose for which he created the earth in the first place. So that he could abide here and dwell here as one big holy of holies, one big temple, one big Eden, if you will. New heaven and new earth. That is what we would call the Missio Dei, the mission of God. And as our text makes plain today, upon his resurrection, Jesus entrusts that mission to his followers. Because his resurrection is only the, the first fruits, as 1 Corinthians 15, 23 tells us. The first fruits of a new creation harvest. And our responsibility, very clearly stated in our text today, is to take the reality of what Christ has accomplished through his cross and through his resurrection and proclaim that message. Each one of us has that mandate. In other words, Christ is risen, we have work to do. If you could boil this passage down to one main point. In fact, all four Gospels close in a very similar manner. N.T. Wright in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, says, With Easter, God's new creation has begun. And Jesus' followers are to be its agents, not merely its beneficiaries. You see that? We're to be the agents of the new creation, not just those who benefit from it. In other words, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, connect the resurrection of Jesus Christ with our purpose in life. That is our purpose now as believers. We have been created in Christ Jesus... That word created is the verb form for creation, new creation. We have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so the Gospels connect the resurrection of Jesus with our purpose in life. It's a call to a resurrection-driven life. 
That's how you live regret-free. When you're on your deathbed and you're looking back on all the decades of your life, it's a resurrection-driven life. And that's really what Luke 24 is about. Now, R. Kent Hughes likens very helpfully uh, chapter 24 to a a three-paneled painting. Uh, Perhaps there's a painter or two in here. Uh, These three-paneled paintings are called triptychs. You got three parallel scenes, resurrection triptych, if you will. So if you were painting Luke 24, you have in the first scene the women at the tomb, the empty tomb. And the angels say, He's not here, He is risen. In the second painting, you've got the two disciples, one named Cleopas, the other one unnamed, uh, who are on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus just appears to them. And he begins to exegete. He begins to break down and explain the scriptures and how the Old Testament points us and and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then in the third scene of this triptych, this painting, if you will, you have our present text. We learned last time that these two disciples, once their eyes were opened and once their hearts began to burn and they recognized that Jesus was with them and Jesus had been raised, they go back the seven miles to Jerusalem to report what they had experienced, what they had seen and what they had heard. And so here at this present place in the text, uh, they are with the disciples, okay? And so you got the, the three scenes, and all of them follow this order. First of all, there is confusion. There's deep confusion about what has taken place. Secondly, you've got um, a rebuke, a loving rebuke, okay, that is given um, by, uh, typically it's Jesus, and then earlier the angels. Then you have instruction, And then you have witness. That's the order in all three of these scenes. And we see this confusion early on in our present text. So at this point, the two disciples are in this room. We don't know where the room is. It's some room in Jerusalem. And at least uh, ten of the disciples are there. Thomas isn't there. And then perhaps you have other disciples as well. And in verse 36, it says they... They were talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. It is Easter evening at this point. So you've got all of these disciples in the room and all of a sudden, Jesus just appears. Now Luke doesn't tell us how this happened. Um, He's not burdened with that. That's not his concern. Uh, obviously, Jesus' resurrection body had properties um, that his body of humiliation did not have. Now, why do I call it a body of humiliation? Uh, Jesus' body that he took on at the union of his divine nature and his human nature, what we call hypostatic union, was a body like ours. All right? It was a body that could age. It's a body that was subject to disease and viruses and and colds and and pain and thirst and hunger and fatigue, all of these things. So when he was 30 years old, he would have looked 30 years old, okay? And it was a body that could die. It was a body of humiliation. Jesus did not have a sin nature. He was the perfect and is the perfect Son of God. But he had a body that came. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8 verse 3. And when he was raised from the grave, it was still his body. It wasn't a new body. It was still his body. But now the glory, the glory of God has swallowed up the inglorious. The corruptible has been swallowed up by the incorruptible. And so now he is in a glorified human body. He does not look like Casper. Okay, this is a real body. But there are different properties, evidently, because he was able to just to disappear when he was speaking to those two disciples last week in our text. And here he just suddenly appears with these disciples. And so this scene here is just a continuation of the previous story. So all the disciples are sharing their reports, and Jesus himself stands among them, and he says something very remarkable in light of their behavior over the previous days. There's been a lot of compromise. There's been a a lot of unbelief. Peter has denied him 
three different times. Uh, They fled the scene when he was being crucified. And he says something quite remarkable in light of their behavior. He looks at them and he says, now that I've got your attention, I am extraordinarily disappointed in your behavior. No, that's not what he says. He says, peace to you. Now, when Jesus is saying peace to you, he's not just giving them a greeting. He's not just saying hello. He is giving them the very shalom. That's the Hebrew term for peace. He is giving them back the shalom of God, the peace, the shalom that was lost by human sin. In fact, every emotional, relational, spiritual, and moral angst that you experience in this life, and I would venture to say you've already experienced some of that even this morning, is due to the loss of this shalom. Okay? It was lost by sin. Sin is devastating on the way God intended things to be. Cornelius Van uh, Plantica has a book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. That's the name of the book. And he says that sin is the vandalism of shalom. Isn't that a beautiful way of saying it? Sin is the vandalism of shalom. Uh, shalom, vertical shalom. Okay, my relationship with God, the peace of God, the peace that we had in the garden is lost and destroyed. You're not born into this world with that shalom. You're born into alienation. And the alienation is two-sided. You're alienated from God because you hate God in your unregenerate state. You do not love Him. The carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Romans 8, verse 7. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You follow the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. You're alienated and separated from the life of God. Colossians chapter 1. You are alienated from Him because you don't love Him. His glory is not what you uh, are motivated by. And God is alienated from you because of his holy and righteous and just and loving wrath on your sin. So there is no shalom between you and God. And as a result, there is no shalom between you and your fellow man. At best, we use people. If people can promote my kingdom causes, then I see this person as a friend. But if that person is an obstacle to my kingdom pursuits, then there is a problem, okay? I see that person as an obstacle. In both cases, I'm using the person rather than loving the person. Shalom is broken at the horizontal level. Shalom is also lost internally. That's why I'm always looking for something on the horizontal plane to fill the void, the vacuum that's in my heart. And so you've got... Vertical shalom, horizontal shalom, and internal shalom that is broken and lost and vandalized because of my sin. And Jesus comes after his resurrection from the grave. And trust me, the peace that he is now offering was achieved at a great cost. Because he takes the wrath that we deserve. He took it on the cross and was raised from the grave. And now he offers that peace to those who have vandalized God's shalom. He knows your heart. Have you ever heard somebody say, God knows my heart? Well, let me tell you something. That's the worst news ever. God knows your heart. Well, he knows everything about you that should condemn you. He knows your false motives. He knows your lust. He knows your idolatries. He knows your lovelessness. He knows how you use people to promote your own purposes. He knows that when it appears you're loving someone, you're actually just loving yourself. You want them to approve of you. He knows all of these different things. And he says, to everyone who would repent, to everyone who would believe, peace to you. That's remarkable. 
That is utterly remarkable when you recognize your greatest problem is not your financial situation or your health or your spouse. Your greatest problem is the loss of shalom because of your sin. And Jesus comes and says, peace to you. Doesn't that make you want to love him more? Doesn't that make you want to serve him? He's offering that peace. But as with us so often uh, of the time, uh, this is just too good for them. Their, their faith is too weak at this point. Their faith is too weak to receive what Jesus is offering at this point. Notice in verse 37. But they were startled and frightened. And they thought they saw a spirit. Reminds me of Scooby-Doo, Shag and Scoob, you know. I mean, here's a guy who's offering him the greatest, uh, the greatest glory and truth and gift in the history of the world. And they're focused on their fears. Now, at this point, we know that the two from Emmaus had seen Jesus. We know as well that Peter has seen Jesus. Because verse 34 tells us that. But most of the guys in this room have not seen Jesus raised from the grave. And that's why they are startled. And it's interesting that Jesus is showing them uh, tangible evidence that it is He who is talking to them. Who is present in the room and still the lights have not come on. They haven't turned the corner. But that's not to say that tangible evidence isn't important. In fact, it, um, it certainly does stress um, that um, the, the liberals are wrong. Um, and it, it does tell us that Jesus' resurrection wasn't just a spiritual resurrection. It was a material and physical uh, resurrection. But the lights have not come on at this point. And this is where Jesus lovingly rebukes them. Uh, Notice in verse 38. In verse 38 he says, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, Jesus' why question here communicates something very important. It communicates this, that the disciples do not understand the implications of who he is as the resurrected Son of God. Okay? And if they understood the ramifications and the implications of the fact that he has triumphed, that he is victorious, that he is the resurrected Son of God, then that would cause the the troubles, the fears... And the doubts to flee. And this is a question um, that he poses, in fact, to every believer. Let's think about that question again. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? He is risen. Do you realize that all the present woes and angst that you're experiencing, and I promise you, To a man, you're experiencing them. Every single person in this room has some angst in his or her life. Okay? Do you realize that all the present woes you're experiencing right now, whether it's financial, health, relational, marriage, uh, your job, your children, do you realize in just a few years, and I mean a short time, that's all going to be irrelevant? But if you are in Christ, the resurrected Messiah, for all eternity, that's going to be the most important reality about you. That's what he's saying. Why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? I have been raised from the grave. Let not your heart be troubled. I have overcome the world. That's exactly what he told them the night before he was crucified. He was prophesying, I have overcome the world. It is good as done. Tomorrow when I am crucified on a Roman cross, I'm going to be raised from the grave on the third day. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
That is a promise. That is a word to us. In other words, the resurrection should change everything about how I view my present troubles. About how I view my present doubts and woes. It should be the lens by which I interpret reality. Christ is risen. Okay? And they still don't get this. And so he condescends to them in their weakness to drive this point home that he is raised. Notice verse 39. See my hands and my feet? That it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In other words, the resurrection possesses a physical element. And in verses 40 to 42, he continues to drive that home. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Incidentally, this had a huge uh, impact on John. Do you remember in 1 John 1, he begins his epistle this way, that which was from, uh, from the beginning, that's which we have heard, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. It had a significant impact on him. Notice in verse 41. And while they disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Now that is a quite remarkable statement. I don't know if I've ever read anything like that before. Disbelieved for joy. Uh, Perhaps uh, you've never said anything like that. Um, What does this mean? Well... It doesn't mean that they disbelieve because they just refuse to believe the Bible or they refuse to believe the evidence. It's simply this. The greatest event in the history of the planet has just taken place before their very eyes. It's the greatest thing that will ever happen in the history of the planet until Jesus returns, okay? And keep in mind, the worst event in the history of the planet has just transpired. The Son of God was just crucified and humiliated on a Roman cross. The one they loved most. The one who had demonstrated agape love in the flesh for three years has been crucified. They're dealing with doubts and disappointments, despair and and anger and perhaps depression, and they're starting to question whether this man was an imposter. All of these things have gone through their head. So the worst thing has happened, and now the greatest event in the history of the world has taken place before their very eyes, and they disbelieve for joy. Let me just say here as as a side as well that the cross is the most heinous event in the history of the world. It's worse than what happened in World War II, okay? With Auschwitz, with the Holocaust. It's worse than what happened in, on September the 11th. It's worse than what's happening in, in Iraq even now, as bad as that is. The cross is the worst tragedy, worst moral evil in the history of the world. And at the moment, no one understood that God could bring anything good out of it. The resurrection is the greatest event in the history of the world. So in the same weekend, you have the worst moral tragedy, and in you also have the best event, the most glorious thing that's ever happened in the history of the world in the same uh, uh, weekend. Now here's my point. I believe the cross and the resurrection is the answer to what we perceive to be the problem of evil. Okay? From our limited, finite perspective, there's a problem of evil. But the cross makes it reasonable to believe that if God can take the greatest moral evil and bring about the greatest good, He can take all of those evils we have experienced in our lives and the evils we see in this world. He can take those evils and bring about something glorious. The cross and the resurrection 
is the event that teaches us that. And the disciples at this point are coming to terms with that. But it was a process, and Jesus knew that. So he continues to drive this reality home to them. Notice in verse 41, the second part, he's doing this intentionally. And he says, have you anything here to eat? Do you think it's just because he's hungry? No, I don't think he's hungry. I think he's in a glorified state. I don't think we're going to have hunger pains in our glorified state. I believe we're going to be able to eat. There's going to be eating in the new heavens and the new earth. But I think the eating will not come out of need. There will be no needs. I think this is a, let me just give you a fancy term, a pedagogical question. He's teaching them something here. If you something to eat, and they gave him a piece of broiled fish, um, and he took it and he ate it before them. There are four recorded times that Jesus eats after his resurrection. We saw him eat last week, didn't we? He sat down with the two on the road to Emmaus. He broke the bread. That's when they uh, recognized who he was. We see him eating here. In John 21, the disciples are fishing, and then he, he comes to them, and then they have uh, breakfast right there on the side. And then in Acts chapter 1, we see him eat with them as well. And it's very important that even at this point, the lights haven't come on for the disciples. I think that's intentional. I think they're starting to understand something, but the lights haven't come on. But then something changes. Something changes significantly here. He begins to instruct them from the Scriptures. And as he begins to instruct them from the Scriptures, the lights come on. That is an example to us of the power, the necessity and the sufficiency of Scripture. Look with me in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He reminds them, that he had prophesied that he would be crucified and raised on the third day. But notice the word must, must be fulfilled. That word spelled in English is D-E-I, okay? It's pronounced day, must be fulfilled. That word is used 40 times in Luke and Acts. Now, Luke wrote Acts, okay? So you take this two part book, Luke and Acts, the word must is employed 40 times. Now, why is that important? What we are seeing here is that the cross and the resurrection of the Messiah is not plan B because plan A didn't work. It's not a contingency plan. It's the plan of the ages. It was the plan decreed before the foundations of the earth. Revelation 13, he is the lamb slain before the creation of the earth. Now, you can twist your mind considering how this can be. But the fact is, when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he had the cross and the resurrection decreed before the creation. Okay? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the purpose of creation. All of these things must be fulfilled. And notice, I want you to see here, all three paintings, if you will, are pictures in this resurrection uh, triptych, all focus on God's word of instruction. Um, back in chapter 24, verse 6, when the angels confront the, the women, they say, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men? be crucified on the third day and rise. And they remembered his words. And then last week we saw in verse 25, um, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And now in verse 44... He said to them, these are my words. 
What Jesus is teaching us here, and what Luke is conveying, that tangible physical evidence is important, okay? But the authority to change a person's heart and life is found in the Word itself. The Word of Christ. We can misinterpret our experiences, okay? But the Word has the authority of God Himself. You open up the Scriptures and you begin to teach the Scriptures and show how the Scriptures center on a Christ who's been crucified uh, and raised from the grave, the authority, the power, and the covenantal presence of God the Lord comes to bear on that broken situation. Remember, we are agents of the new creation. If you want to be an agent of the new creation, you use the instruments that have been entrusted to you. And the instrument is the Word, the Word of Christ. And yet, we also recognize we can teach till we're blue in the face. You can read the Bible and listen to preaching all day long. But the lights are not going to come on until God grants you illumination. Until God the Spirit, God the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ grants you illumination. Notice with me in verse 45, very remarkable verse. Then he opened their minds. He opened their minds. Isn't that remarkable? You can read the Bible, but unless God opens your mind, it's just going to be ink on a page. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Remember back in verse 31? And their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. Here, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Have you ever experienced that? I experience it virtually every week when I'm reading the Bible, preparing. It's a text you've read perhaps your entire life. You've heard it preached. You've heard it taught. Uh, It's been there for 2,000 years, that text. And all of a sudden... You see new realities about that text. It was there all along. The the teaching was there all along. It's been true since it was first written. All of a sudden, your mind is opened to the glory of that text. And that's the work of the God, the Spirit. That is the work of the Spirit of Christ. And unless God, the Spirit, does that, you're you're just going to read the Bible to no avail. And that's why we should pray with the psalmist, Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that that I may behold the wondrous things found in your law. That should be what we pray constantly as we are reading the scriptures. Or you're just going through the motions. You are completely dependent on the Spirit of Christ opening your minds. And that's why people can, can, can read the Bible every day. Let me give you an example. Winston Churchill, he read his King James Bible every day. But when he spoke, there was nothing about the blood of Christ. There was nothing about the righteousness of Christ. He was not fascinated and centered on the gospel. So you can read your Bible. You can teach this Bible in a Sunday school class. Okay? But unless God the Spirit has opened your minds, I promise you, you will not be a gospel person. You are completely dependent on the Spirit to open your mind. So cry out, Holy Spirit, open my mind that I may read this Bible in a Jesus-centered way because the Bible is centered on Jesus. And that's why you can hear some people when they talk about the Bible, they're fascinated with secondary things. But the gospel just doesn't seem to be their burden at all. But do you realize that's the Spirit's burden? The Spirit's burden is the gospel. The Spirit's burden is the Holy, uh, is, is Christ and what He has accomplished for sinners. And so if I'm not centered on what the Holy Spirit is centered upon, I'm reading the Bible wrongly. So ask the Lord, open my mind, just like these disciples experienced here. And now that their minds are opened, He's ready to teach them. Look in verse 46. And we're going to have to fly through this. He said to them, thus it is written... That the Christ, 
should suffer. And on the third day, rise from the dead. Now keep in mind, what is he teaching them from? We saw in verse 44, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings, the Psalms. Now this is the only place in the New Testament, but you speak to any Jew today, and they recognize a three-part, you know, three sections to their, what they call their Tanakh. That's what the uh, Jews today call the, what we call the Old Testament. They don't use the language of Old Testament. That's very offensive to them, in fact. They call it the Tanakh. The Torah, the T stands for Torah. The, the N stands for Nevim, or the prophets. And the, the, uh, the K uh, stands for the Kefuvim, the, the writings. And the Psalms is kind of shorthand for the writings. Jesus opens to them the Tanakh. The law, the prophets, and the writings. And what he is doing, he's going section by section, and he is showing them how the Christ must suffer and be raised from the grave on the third day. In other words, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, is Christian scriptures. It's centered on Jesus. Now, we could spend months on this. I just want to give you a taste. For instance, where does... The law. What is the law? The first five books of the Bible. Moses wrote the law. The Pentateuch. Where does the law speak about the suffering Christ? It's all over. One example. The first promise that we see. It's a promise I've given you. But let's look at it once again. Genesis 3 verse 15. The first gospel promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. In other words, the Messiah, the one who's going to come, is going to experience some kind of suffering. You're going to bruise his heel. It's the same verb, but he's going to bruise your head. He's going to crush your head. That's the suffering of Christ. Or perhaps he took them to the Exodus where you have the, the lambs who must be sacrificed. Maybe he took them to Genesis 22. You have Isaac up on the altar and he says, Father, where's the lamb? And he says, God will provide himself the lamb. Where's the resurrection in the law? Well, maybe God or Jesus took them to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, you've got... God, Yahweh, coming to Moses in a revelatory way. And he says in verse 6, I am the God of your father. Notice, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. You go, how does that prove the resurrection? Well, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 20 that it proves the resurrection. If you look in Luke chapter 20, verse 37, he says, But the dead, that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, when when God came to Moses... He said, I, it doesn't say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you have the resurrection from the law. How about, his, how about the prophets? Where do you have Christ's suffering in the prophets? Well, Isaiah 53 is the classic passage. That is the fourth servant song. I could read the entire passage to you. But in Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have each turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But where is he resurrected in the prophets? How about Hosea chapter 6? Or perhaps he took him to Ezekiel 37. Can these bones live, Lord? you got the valley of dry bones. Only you know, Lord. And then in Hosea 6 verse 2, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. So you got the law. you got the prophets. How about the Psalms? Where does the Psalms speak about the sufferings of the Christ? How about Psalm 22? 
that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the seven statements of Jesus on the cross. But in Psalm 22, verse 16, hundreds of years before they had even invented crucifixion, dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. You go, ah, but Brian, where does resurrection fit in the Psalms? How about Psalm 16? In Psalm 16, you've got the, this, this glorious Psalm of David that is actually picked up by Peter in Acts when he speaks of this, this glorious promise, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter says that's not referring to David because his body rotted in the grave. That's referring to the one in whom David points, the greater David, the son of David, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Indeed, if you proof text, there's Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 28. And so Jesus is instructing them in the law, the prophets, in the writings. And then he brings them to a very central part of our commission while he continues to instruct them. And that brings us to the fourth part of this painting, if you will, or this third scene of the painting, witness. All of these scenes end in witness. Notice in verse 47. In light of this, he says, in light of the fact that the Bible has been prophesying that I would be crucified and raised from the grave... He says in verse 47, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are to be witnesses of these things. Now, let's speak to this a moment. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Um, Why should the repentance and the forgiveness of sins be preached To all the nations. Here's the reason. All the nations are lost. How about the man on the island? The man on the island is lost. He's not innocent. The truth that has been revealed to him through creation and through his own internal, uh, you know, the law written on his heart, the fact that he's created the image of God, he's exchanged that truth for a lie. Romans 1 says that. In other words, what would this man do with the gospel if he had it? He would do with the gospel what he has done with all the other truth that's been handed to him. He's exchanged it for a lie. Although he knows God is God, he does not glorify God as God, nor is he thankful. He is an idolater. There is no innocent man on the island. And that's why we must preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to the nations. If these people who've never heard the gospel aren't accountable, then the worst thing we could ever do is to give them the gospel because now they're accountable. It would be wicked of us. But Jesus is saying, you go preach in my name because of the lostness of of the nations. That's why the nations must repent. And that's why the nations need the forgiveness of sins. In my name, he says. Now, what is repentance? Repentance is sorrow for sin, leading one to hate and forsake it because it's displeasing to God. Okay? That's, that's repentance. What is the forgiveness of sins? It, when, it's what God does when the debt is paid and one repents and receives the re- provision that God has made for sin. Your greatest problem is not anything in this created order. Your greatest problem is the need for forgiveness. That's why you have the loss of shalom that you have. And that's why the psalmist was like, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all your benefits, who forgives all my sins. Forgiveness is the greatest gift, but it must be preached. It doesn't happen by osmosis. Now, here's the question. Is there mission in the law? Is there mission in the law? How about Genesis chapter 12? In Genesis chapter 12, when God comes to Abraham... And he promises Abraham all these glorious uh, promises. He says in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That tells us right now that it's going to be through God's um, 
chosen man and tribe that all the nations will be blessed. So Abraham is not to sit on this promise. It's going to be through his family line that you have the blessing of the nations, the salvation of the nations. That is a missional uh, promise, a missional responsibility. By the way, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16 that the seed of Abraham is Jesus. And if you are in Christ, you belong, you are a son of Abraham, which means you have this mandate. That's Galatians 3.29. So we have missions in the law. How about missions in the prophets? Is there mission in the prophets? Well, it's found throughout the prophets. Let me just give you one example. Isaiah 49, verse 6. And by the way, this is the third servant song. But uh, in Isaiah 49, verse 6, God says through Isaiah, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now he's speaking to an individual whose name is Israel. It's an individual man though. Okay? How's that fulfilled? The light of the world, Jesus. Okay? In fact, in Acts chapter 13, Paul says that we are the light to the nations by virtue of our identification in Jesus. And so because of what Jesus has accomplished through his resurrection, we carry on that mandate. The resurrection is our marching orders, in other words. How about the Psalms? Is there missions in the Psalms? Throughout the Psalms. Let me just end Psalm 22 with these words. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. Jesus is teaching us that the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and missions to the nations is found in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the burden of the Old Testament. And that should be our burden as well. Exactly what he says in verse 48. He says, you are witnesses of these things. That's our mandate. Do you realize that is our burden? That is our responsibility. You are witness of these things. What are you witnesses of? The cross, the resurrection, and repentance, the forgiveness of sins, and missions. That's what we're to be about. So when we pray in a service, that's what we pray. When we preach in a service, that's what we preach. When we sing in a service, that's what we sing. When we fellowship, that's what we fellowship over. Those realities. You are witnesses of these things. In fact, all three of these uh, scenes end with witness. You can see that. In chapter 24, verse 9, the women leave the the, uh, angels. And what do they do? And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. And then you have, in verse 33, uh, the two disciples on Emmaus, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven, those who were with them, gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed. And here you have this closing with witness, this emphasis on witness. But here's the question. And it's perhaps crossed your mind as well. How in the world, in light of the vastness, the breadth, the gravity of the lostness of humanity, how in the world could we ever carry this out? How can I carry it out individually? I've got the nations represented in my neighborhood. We've got Hindus and, and atheists and, and, and Muslims and <laughs> every other religion you can think of in our neighborhood. How can we ever accomplish such a task? And that's how Jesus closes. We're going to come back to this next time. But it's how he closes that important conversation. Verse 29, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Now there's a lot more that could be said there, and I will speak to it next time. But let me just say this. He says, Stay in the city till you're clothed with power from on high. What God the Spirit does is He comes... And He empowers you to do what you cannot do in and of yourself. You're utterly impotent. You're utterly inadequate. And the Spirit comes and He gives you resurrection power. 
He resurrects not only uh, your capacities, He resurrects your ambitions. You have new desires. Whereas before you didn't care one flip whether this person was a Christian or not. Now you have a new burden for that person's soul. And then when you begin to speak to that person, there is power in your words, though you hear weakness. I have a new student in one of my classes named Troy. Late 20s, early 30s. And um, I asked him to give me his testimony last week. He said, I was on Skid Row in Los Angeles six years ago. He said, I was smoking a joint. And a church from Australia on a short-term mission trip came to Skid Row. And a man came up to me and quoted. That's all he did was quote a verse. Wasn't a great evangelist. Just He said, Matthew 11, come to me all you that are weary and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. And he said, and I was tired. This man was offering me rest in Jesus and I was tired. And I was converted to Jesus Christ. Short-term mission trip. Now here's the question. Where does the power come from for a churchy person? And that's the way the, the outside world sees us. We're just a bunch of churchy people. Where does the power from a churchy person come from who can lead a skid row rebel to saving faith in Jesus Christ? It's the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1. We have that power that raised Christ from the dead. Ephesians 1. Now here's another question. Where does the motive... Where does the motive to sacrifice your comforts, your time, and your resources to fly across the other side of the world? That's where Australia is. To fly across the other side of the world and instead of spending time at Disneyland and, you know, Hollywood, you go to Skid Row. Where does that kind of motivation come from? Resurrected motives. Resurrected ambitions. A resurrected focus. We are naturally focused on ourselves. I am. We're naturally focused on self-interest. But because of the resurrection and because of the spirit of the resurrection, we have the power and we have the resurrected motives. To be witnesses of these things. Think about these disciples as we close. John's account tells us they were in a room and the door was locked because they were scared of the Jews. And Jesus just appears. He can't just open the door. The door's locked. He just appears in the room. I have a feeling he would have walked through the door like a, you know, in a normal situation. The door was locked. Why? Because the disciples are wimps. They're scared. They're scared just like we are. But something changed. Something changed. When they beheld the resurrected Christ and the Holy Spirit came upon them, these self-preserving cowards gave their lives away for this reality. And Coulter does not understand that yet. Kent Brantley, the doctor does. And the Holy Spirit wants Fisherville to understand that as well. Let's pray.